Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. Hey, everyone. This is part two of the interview with Molly Burhans. Check your podcast feed to find the earlier one and get to know her a little bit before we get into this content. Thanks. Though Molly's voice is understandable, our recording of her is sometimes a little glitchy. Sorry about that. It, it sounds like, for you, there was a spiritual awakening in the creative reverence of map making, yet it's connected to justice, and it's connected to land justice in particular, and how we're caring for and re- regenerating the sacred earth. So... At what point in your journey did it become uh, consciousness of the power of maps related to justice? Or is that all along? I would say it became something that I was aware of when I was co-founding the um, vertical farm in Buffalo. Mm. Because at that point was when I um, really got introduced to, for the first time, permaculture and regenerative design. It's a paradigm that goes beyond sustainable is about keeping the status quo, whereas regeneration is about not keeping the status quo, but building more resilience, vitality, and kind of dynamic systems like living systems, building that into our understanding of how we can work with them and co-create and improve their functions mm. over time. Regenerative farming and landscape restoration, design planning, if you haven't seen it, it's really hard to even imagine it. This is so obvious, but I say this like a broken record. You shouldn't be doing environmental programs if you don't understand the environment. And the way to understand the environment is maps. It's kind of like you wouldn't go in and do surgery on someone for the most part, if you didn't have any imagery or any sort of map or spatial comprehension of what you were doing surgery on. So when you hear about these programs, we're gonna plant a million trees and parishes, you really need a map to understand which trees where. And that's a very simplified version, but Mm -hmm. then once you get more extensive, you can see how all of the pieces can fit together and work holistically. And that approach is not only the best way to approach understanding land and managing it. But if you were to do that without the help of visualization of of the land, which is basically what a map is, a geographic Mm -hmm. (laughs) graphic of the earth, um, then if you try to say do that with just databases with no visualization and charts that weren't geographic and maybe written instructions, it would be extremely overwhelming. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Land is related to power, and it can be politically risky and dangerous, as you've talked about, as I've heard you say, to be doing this work. And we know that the Catholic Church might be one of the most powerful institutions globally. Where does this project stand of mapping the church's lands presently? Your work at Good Lands, what's going on with it? What's working and what are the challenges? I'll let you know once I have an answer. No, um, the work at Goodlands, there's like a couple different pieces to it. Mapping Catholic lands. Media has gotten this very wrong on occasion. And mm. I try to always 
make this very clear, but sometimes it doesn't go through, which is I am not trying to map every single Catholic property in the world in one database. <laughs> it would be extremely risky. Extremely stupid, I think, and extremely costly to maintain. I don't think any major world religion should ever have a consolidated database about their locations of their properties and stuff. Like religion and land, I would say, are the cosmologies that we hold and kind of the frame of existence and relationality with the universe and everything around us and our relationship to land and the resources there are the two most powerful drivers of civilization historically, arguably. But they're also the two things that people have killed each other and fought the most about. So yeah. it's a really, really high leverage point for change, but it also needs to be approached with profound um, respect and caution. So what have I mapped globally? I've mapped the ecclesiastical jurisdictions around the world. And that itself was a project that took a team of over 50 people. Six months. It takes a village to make a map like that. So when I say ecclesiastical jurisdictions, what I mean are bishops' conference. That's like the admin one level of the church. There was no map online or anywhere globally unified of USCCB, um, you know, being one of the bishops' conferences, all the bishops' conferences around the world. There aren't that many. We also mapped provinces. Now, there was one map of provinces which we found online that was the only global jurisdictional map of the church and i tracked down the person who made it on reddit <laughs> he was a, a 18 year old at the time he was 17 when he made it and he was our first paid intern so when i was an invited researcher as we were working on this huge mapping project i, I brought him onto the team which was great so comparably a bishop's conference is like a country mm-hmm. if you're talking about geopolitics admin two a province is like a state and then when I'm going to call a diocese, though there are many different types, when I'm using the term diocese right now, I'm talking about all of them, okay? okay. <laughs> and beyond, there's other types as well. So then we map the diocese level. So that's like what we would call admin three, which is comparable to a county. Hmm. And the level below that, admin four, would be parishes. So the parish level would be comparable to like a zip code or a census tract, right? We have not mapped parishes globally because in many of the dioceses I've worked with and talked with don't even have maps of their parish boundaries anymore, or they're often hand-drawn if they do. The parish boundaries globally would be the kind of highest resolution that I think we should have in a global database. Nothing should be higher than that. Um, The only existing almost globalish map at the time we started this was the Atlas Hierarchicus, which contained subcontinental, so below the continental level, zoomed in maps of diocesan boundaries, but it had been hand-drawn in various projections. It's pretty much a fancy doodle, Mm. and it had not been updated since 1801. So if it's different projections with no standard, what that means is you can't even stitch together these different maps. There's no global map of the church visualized, essentially, when we start digitally or not digitally. So that's that one piece. This is there's a lot of parts of the question. I kind of went on the Matt tangent. So sorry, excuse me. I just want to pause and name it like because it feels like there should be some fanfare. Like when you started this work 10 years ago, that was what there was, was the map from 1801. And now you did this. (laughs) 
I, I did. I can't believe, by the grace of God, when I step back and look at it, I definitely get the vibes of Peter on the water, right? It's Peter, right? When he's on the water and Jesus is out there and Peter is like, what am I doing up here? Oh my gosh. And he's like, you're not afraid. Chill out. And that's what happens when I actually step back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I made the first global visualization of the Catholic Church in history. What this allows us to do, the jurisdictional maps, is to not only see the church globally for the first time ever, but to measure stuff. So we added in over 50 years of data from this uh, Vatican resource called the Anuario Pontificio. That's kind of like the yearbook. So it's got bishop names, it's got number of priests, number of Catholics, Mm. population, so general population. And the great thing is because they included population in that statistic, we could measure against existing population that data that major international organizations and countrywide censuses had done. We could then use that to say, okay, these dioceses, their population data is very close to the estimates out here. And so that means this data is probably reliable. But mm. the data from the Vatican was shockingly accurate. Huh. That kind of data allowed us to see, say, the number of priests to the number of Catholics, which shows the priest shortage globally. It allows us to see the number of sisters over time, where the numbers are going up or going down, same with priests. It allowed us to see how many Catholics there are per population. Is this place 98% Catholic versus 5% Catholic? Mm -hmm. And an example of how we used that to tell a story Mm. and show actionable ideas was we looked at where there was the most biodiversity in the world in each diocese. So we took global forest watch data, which tracks deforestation, and also global satellite data Mm. that conservationists use that shows over time to the present habitat either being built or depleted or remaining the same. And the last thing we add to this was data sets from the State Department showing where the government was the most fragile or Pretty much in, in simple terms, where the government's super, super dysfunctional or functional. That data set allowed us to see which diocese Catholics are the most likely important non-state actor present for biodiversity preservation, because we can see there's a ton of Catholics here. It's 90% Catholic. There's a really dysfunctional government that's not going to intervene and take care of this. There's a ton of biodiversity that needs to be protected. And there is a huge amount of habitat destruction going on rapidly in this area. Mm. That immediately, that one map tells this story that is actionable for, say, where should you put your money if you're a philanthropist that cares about creation, that cares about caring for anybody, because we know they're all interconnected, right? Um, cares about your neighbor. And you want to work with the church on having a big impact in this crisis moment. Those foundational data sets we made can predict human migration um, and even the routes that people are going to take for that. So the Catholic Church runs the largest aid network, unless you include all member organizations of the UN in the world. Being able to see this, especially because migration is not going to slow down, especially due to climate change, will be able to help us see the world in this um, transnational global view and say, we have all these resources, and this place is going to get 3 million refugees or migrants. How can we mobilize? Once again, this is really for helping leadership, Mm. the big NGOs, the local people that know the best, know what to do, and really need the resources and support of these people, and the philanthropist, and potentially the Vatican to coordinate 
together. Um, so those are just some examples. Other things we did a little bit of mapping was abuse. So I made mm. maps for the Extraordinary Synod on abuse. I shouldn't say they did not commission me for that. I just made them because I was like, this is really important and I know how to make actionable things. And we've mapped actually more localized abuse in the U.S. Maps are a vital part of tracking crimes, tracking where they happen, where there are clusters, how to intervene. And the Vatican and the church, without doubt, should be using these tools to address this absolutely horrific scourge that we face as an institution and people of God. Without maps, I really don't think they can make informed decisions, understand the story, and really get ahead of the issues when there's reports or being able to see even not just ongoing reports of abuse, et cetera, or historical ones, but being able to see trends, see what the risk factors are. You know, it was so it's so dark to even look at that subject and we all need to and we all need to support everyone who has been hurt by it one of the few bright lights in that was seeing that when the dallas convocation happened and when in parts of the world that we did have data for when they implemented safeguarding measures the cases of abuse went down so dramatically mm. um, so it, it shows that it works and that's the kind of data we need to be using because there are still parts of the world i know the church in africa certain areas diocese where bishops are saying no this doesn't happen here it's only a western problem we know that's not true right right actually it happens everywhere but being able to show them the hope that it is a solvable problem mm-hmm. what you just described was all what goodlands was doing right Partially. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yes. I feel yes, and I need diagrams, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I can make you a map after this. <laughs> um, so to make boundary maps is a very, very specialized area of geography and cartography. The team that I led to make these maps had just completed doing admin three. So like not national, not state, the level below that maps for nations in West Africa um, the CDC and World Health during the 2014 Ebola outbreak. And so as much as we can say, oh my gosh, why did the church not have the resource? Like other countries didn't even have this resource, right? Comparably. The boundary maps we made, older versions, not the most updated, are public. And you can see that we used over 2,000 different resources referenced <laughs> for those maps for verification and checking. You have to have things be the same level of detail or chunkiness. If you open up Google Maps and you zoom in, you will see once you get close enough that country boundaries look very chunky. Mm. That's because if you have incredibly detailed country boundaries in your Google and you get something wrong, or if there is a geopolitical conflict happening Mm. that is moving those boundaries slightly, you can really tick off a lot of people. For us, the concern was, even though in some areas we had quite high resolution, so high detail diocese boundaries, we had to make sure that they were chunky enough that no bishop was gonna come yell at us oh. and and say, you know, wait, this is mine, this is yours, we, until we had systems in place <laughs> for, you mm-hmm. know, updating and improvement formally, that it would be respectful of that. And also that the, the worst quality data that we got would, have to be harmonized. So everything else in the data set had to reflect the chunkiest, the mm-hmm. lowest resolution data. Otherwise, everything's not going to work together. I'm not going to teach you all this. It's fascinating. There's so 
much cool technical stuff. Um, <laughs> so going to the global maps and what, what Goodlands is doing um, and the Vatican. Actually, the Vatican is the most logical segue here. Mm. I should say, in addition to the global jurisdictional maps, ecclesiastical jurisdictions, we were commissioned to mine data from the Honorarium Statisticum Ecclesiae. It has Catholic statistics, but in relation to countries. Now, that was immensely problematic. We built software that actually mined all that data. We used around, I think, 30, 50, 30 years of country boundary data sets, which, as we started the project, the UN had just released for the first time ever. So this is like the changes of countries over time, right? And they have this kind of authoritative set. That was really like this fire alarm project for us, because unlike dioceses, the Vatican data, the problematic nature of this and the Vatican not having standards is that, you know, the team that I worked with, they once had a colleague who has, of course, been fired now, who mislabeled Taiwan um, to not reflect a country that they were helping digitize their geographic operations. It didn't reflect the country's political relations with China and Taiwan. And it literally almost caused a physical conflict between the country and China until people stepped in and were like, the cartographer messed up on this. Now you can imagine the fact that the Vatican does not have standards and standards aren't just even the countries they recognize the statehood for. It's also how you depict, you know, contested boundaries. Where do you put a dotted line? Like the border of Pakistan and India, for example. This all sends signals to the leaders of states of the geopolitical realities and aspirations you have and by not having a geography office and by not having geographic standards for this stuff in the vatican they are endangering the livelihoods and religious freedom of millions of catholics around the world the reason why i've approached the vatican at all and continued pursuing conversations and renegotiating even a papal approved project that I could have done there that did not have things like standards and everything you need to do to do this work professionally, responsibly, and respectfully um, has been because these two kind of sets of data that I mentioned need to live in Rome. Goodlands should not own and manage global diocesan ecclesiastical boundaries. Right now, I am the world authority on these. So if a bishop has a conflict about a boundary, they're going to come to me. They need to have a, a way to update these regularly. They need to have a, a way to resolve conflicts. And they need what we call in the world of, of maps and geography, authoritative data sets. They need to be able to put their stamp of approval on this and say, this is it, folks. And same for the country boundaries. The only reason I think why you'd ever want to be doing things at HQ is because you have something very globally relevant for the church, as I do in my case. And it is something that you happen to be a very uniquely experienced authority <laughs> on, which is also the case for me. If these things weren't the case, I would have definitely, I would not have continued um, pursuing things in Rome. This, these are really the only reason why I've continued to knock on the doors is and renegotiate things there is really because of the global relevance and um, importance of of this work and the fact that it is one of those few, very few things that really belongs in Rome. I think the other reason to be in Rome is being in a position where you have already shown immense ability 
to carry the tremendous responsibility and weight of shepherding the flock or grappling with very serious, very pertinent theological issues related to the church. And it is something where you feel spiritually called and um, grounded enough. You need to be really grounded to be in reality um, to bring value to the flock as a whole, um, because the stakes are, are incredibly, incredibly high, the amount of responsibility to be at such a hub of influence. And it attracts people for so much the wrong reason occasionally. Mm, mm-hmm. Thankfully, there are some really, 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 really holy people I've met. So that's why the Vatican work has stayed on the table at all. And I'm really hopeful that could happen. Mm-hmm. So I have everything laid out. Um, and I'm just letting go, letting God. I just will say there's glimmers of hope. It's going to rock stuff so hard. It's going to have such a good impact on the world. I'm so stoked. I'm so annoyed, though. I've just have I've decided like a good way to phrase my relationship with the Vatican at this point is let go and let God. And I am obedient, but very obnoxious. I think people are very annoyed with me. Whatever. Like, whatever. I'm just here to help the church. And we're all I'm not going to judge them. Um, well, so, we'll properties. It's all in God's hands. I can't, I can't even, like, yeah, properties. Let's get back to that. What do you so, want to explain about what Good Lands is doing with properties? I'm so just Good asking. Lands has been yeah. consulting with dioceses, mapping things, and Catholic organizations. We just started, you know, our first page consulting was in, I think, 2017 because I was just in very inexperienced and ignorance about business plans. I just couldn't get any funding. So I was like, well, we have to start charging and doing stuff. Um, So we started just doing smaller projects, like mapping schools, school suitability, mapping properties. Nobody wanted to pay for environmental mapping. Uh, I was working with students at Yale. I'd be like, we just like do it for fun and it'd be pro bono. And then we started to get bigger requests. Some of them I had to put into this holding pattern because I didn't have the capacity for staff. Mm. What turned out to be was I hadn't just developed a model for the Catholic Church to digitize its land records and, you know, make informed holistic decisions regarding property using super high resolution data. A good example would be like trees. If you're going to plant a tree, if you plant it in the right place, you can save in parts of the world. 30 to 50% on cooling and heating, right? And understanding where, if you're gonna plant trees, not only they will survive, but have the most ROI for you and also the most impact. 10 trees planted on an inner city parish with urban heat island effects. A lot of urban areas have these surfaces that get hotter and it makes a big difference, right? So if you plant 10 trees there, especially if there's no tree canopy in the area, which you can see from existing data, um, you're gonna have magnitudes the impact on physical health of the community, the mental health. There's so much amazing data about how trees are just rocking awesome for so many things. And asthma, they can help with particulate filtration, help with, you know, heat, help with lowering the cost of AC and multitudes of other things. So like they're going to sell a property, say a congregation needs $10 million for sisters that are retiring. If you don't look at all the properties and just say, okay, we aren't using this property anymore or this one and we're going to sell them, you're totally missing the picture of where are the people 
Where are the youth? What's the demographics? And also, oh, maybe you own this parking lot you aren't even thinking about because you're looking at an Excel spreadsheet instead of a map. And that parking lot is worth $40 million in downtown big city, right? right? Mm -hmm. um, or there's so many creative things you can do with leasing, leasing to buy, things that can even help you with the land titles, parts of indigenous reconciliation, et cetera. So this model that I made to help look at these properties holistically this is another case of like, well, the Catholic Church is so far behind. It's not. Actually, real estate is kind of a dinosaur. So what ended up happening was I didn't just make a model for the church. I made a model for large distributed networks of land. Like this approach is novel, but it's novel not just for the church. Molly, in the midst of the complexities of the global Catholic Church and devotion to it and devotion to God, what is stewardship for you? Stewardship for me means the Benedictine notion of caring for all things as if they were vessels of the altar. Stewardship is born out of love of God and neighbor and wonder and appreciation and gratitude. And it's a reflection of these embodied values in that is reflected by how we physically interact with the world around us. Stewardship for me means caring and to care for things like the environment. We have to understand the environment and appreciate it both aesthetically and scientifically and historically. And so it, it means taking all of the modalities of exploration and understanding that God has given us and bring those together to love better. Yeah. And in light of that, in light of the call to love better and care for all that God has gifted us with, what we're caring for is the dark history and the truth. Much of the Catholic Church has been oppressive globally, and that's how we've ended up with this phenomenal resource of land that in the reign of God, land is actually not a thing to be possessed. <laughs> it is. Universal destination of common goods. <laughs> right? It is for all. So what has your study and exploration revealed to you about the necessity of this time, how Christians, how Catholics are meant to respond to injustice. I'm thinking especially about our horrific history of colonization, of boarding schools, and the land back movements. What are mm -hmm. Catholics meant to be doing in those movement spaces? I think I am still discovering this for myself as well. I would say the first thing we have to do is listen to our indigenous brothers and sisters. We can't heal the land unless we heal each other. I firmly believe that. And I'm so grateful for the Catholics in this intersection. There's a couple of women, I'll just say that, in this space who sit in this gnarly intersection. Donate to them too. Their work is so heavy and it's so necessary and important. And also non-Catholic indigenous mm -hmm. community. Like it's so valid their feelings and we have done we did a case study looking at all the properties of religious order in Canada and different 
ways that they could be used for indigenous reconciliation mm-hmm. with my class last semester. And so we created, they created almost like typologies of reconciliation. So going beyond land back, mm-hmm. first we mapped all of the different intersections of tribes, mm-hmm. um, a tribal affinity to that property over time. Some tribes have, you know, specific locations that are really important. Some of them, a general thing like the confluence of two rivers is seen as a super holy site. Some of them it's different mountaintops. So being able to actually codify sacred sites. And mm. one of the things we imagined was doing rights of way for indigenous communities. Mm. The true meaning of land back originally is about the fact that there were treaties signed by the government, like Bears Ears is a good example, that delegated more land to indigenous communities and the government fell short and totally lied on those treaties. So land back in its original sense is not about us giving everything back. Mm -hmm. It's about the government giving indigenous communities land that they were promised and the illegal breaking of that contract. Um, it has to be relational, so, right? We need to be actually, you know, synodal, like th- like Pope Francis was emphasizing, really listening to each other here. You're absolutely right. And it's so interesting, at least in Canada, a lot of the First Nations even talk about land mm-hmm. is relational. The post-colonial kind of system that we're in now, the way that we understand land is very object-oriented, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the way that they understand it is much more relational. Even land ownership is not really a thing in in many communities like it is for us. I don't think we can erase land titling and land ownership. It's actually very important. There's a lot of economists and human rights, land rights people that talk about the importance now of having delineated property, you know, has really shifted the game, but it can become very toxic when we think of it as like this grabby ownership, this greedy ownership, rather than like an accountability system, right? It's also not black and white. You know, there are some communities of this religious order. The tribe had gifted them land because the priest involved with them was a major human rights defender at the time of violent colonialization, cultural genocide. And that exact same religious order in a different place is the main perpetrator and sometimes even the same place of that same stuff. So it's it's understanding we contain multitudes and, you know, some communities, there's been issues where somebody do a land back and then you have a very noisy, say, tribal leader and they don't have structure. And the leader then takes that land and personally capitalizes, putting casinos or oil, you know, a lot of the tar sands. Some of them in places have been approved by indigenous leadership. All the indigenous communities were either against it or they were sold upriver for an economic promise, false promises that it wouldn't be detrimental to the community's health. There's a lot of conversations in this space that need nuance, and there's a lot that needs to be less patronizing and more understanding. And I love maps because they can actually bring everyone together Mm. and make a plan and have a conversation. The people actually (laughs) listening and thinking and doing the work need to sit at the table together. They need to first and foremost listen to the needs of indigenous communities. You can do slow transitions while you build capacity in a community so that you don't get oil fields or something. You could do slow transitions with indigenous leaders that are doing, say, health education and regenerative ag. There are a lot of these individuals I know from the Ashoka Fellows Network and beyond that are owning and reclaiming their indigenous agriculture practices and land management. Being able to tie those people with community resources and doing it intelligently is so, so, so important. Being able to figure out ways to monetize the land 
so that you can put that money directly into a pool. If people are suffering, giving money directly to people financially suffering, suffering with health, unable to access resources is hugely valuable. Yeah. You know, so I think we need to be informed. We need to be nuanced. And I know at Columbia University, when we did this with my class, it's very not Catholic class, you know, but students just loved the project because yeah. I, I, and I think part of it that really helped them as well was coming into the conversation about colonization and land, especially for me as a Catholic, like the boogeyman, yeah. it doesn't get more hated than the church as and their role in this pretty much, right? Yeah. Except for maybe the like Dutch East Indian company, they were horrible as well. Yeah. It's almost like you get to, you can just throw off any of your preconceived notions or like fears of being able to have an honest conversation because there was no beating around the bush mm. at how truly, truly, truly um, horrible some of the stuff that happened was. Like it's exactly what you said, the synodal approach, dialogue, science, records. And I think a really important thing is not trying to look good yeah. for us. Right, right. Like the, the white savior complex, throw it out. Like, <laughs> I, I feel like there's this fakeness that can be out there. It's not healthy. This has to be something done with so much reverence. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Molly. Short answer, right? Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot more we could talk about. Just to sort of wrap it up, I'd like to hear you talk about... Well, let me just, just ask it this way. What else would you like to say about the messiness of being a disciple of Jesus Christ and a member of the Catholic Church? <laughs> you know, I was never, like, naive about the issues of the Catholic Church. I mean, I spent two years arguing with Jesuits while attending Mass daily that I wouldn't be Catholic because I was so painfully aware of them. Mm -hmm. um, I think... The mess is, it's really hard to grapple with some days. I think understanding communion means community. And my experiences in the church, and sometimes, especially as the kind of like career started taking off, right, mm -hmm. um, was just nasty beyond what I could have mm ever fathomed in, you know, what is communion worth if there's no community? Isn't that the meaning, right? It's been weird because I feel like my secular or non-Catholic friends, it's it's more relaxed. It's like no one's impressed if you meet the Pope, if you're a millennial. They're like, oh yeah, that messy institution, right? And I'm like, yep. So I think that messiness has been really, really weird and really hard. Being a disciple of Christ, we were never told it was going to be easy. We were pretty much told everything, right, that we would deal with, betrayal, heartbreak, physical even threat, um, sometimes realized. I know that's real. Land activism is very dangerous. I didn't realize I'm kind of tangential with that area until I started receiving significant amounts of threats. Um, mm. All these things are things that Jesus has assured us in his own narrative and his own reality that he is walking with us every single step through the mess because he himself 
went through the mess. I ended up on a on a trauma retreat for church stuff, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it was absolutely beautifully well done. But there was this one section we were going through the Stations of the Cross. And I remember, you know, and they were so good, the people on this. I was just like, I, I need to step out because I, I feel like at times our theology has an, a, a notion of charity that doesn't meet reality. Mm-hmm. Like, like the abuse crisis, it's very hard to not get discouraged. People are like, let's go tell the bishops to advocate and hold them accountable for climate. And I'm like, look, people were advocating holding them accountable when they were hearing about kids being violated and they did nothing. And I have met so many leaders and it gives me a lot of hope. Um, some of the people in the hierarchy, but when I step back from the big picture and see the lack of change and this just toxic displacement of virtue, scandal is caused by the perpetrator, not the victim. That charity is only charity if it meets reality and you cannot forgive unless there is a wrong that can be named. And so when we were looking at the Stations of the Cross, I stepped out and sat in the hall with a priest and I just said, I'm worried that I went through some really, really, really absolutely horrible stuff. And I just was telling him, like, I'm worried that my faith is positioning me to be used mm. and taken advantage of. And the priest held space for that mess, right? Mm. Of really, and I think that's, that's the beauty of when you can find people that allow you to ask really hard questions and I realized that, that impression I had was was a air of theology that I think permeates a lot of Christian communities and has created this systemic problem from the Pope down to local parish to an enablement mm-hmm. of of bad mess. You know, and getting out of that, of, of really um, an enablement of, of extraordinary toxicity. And I think I know a lot of younger people who have committed to following Christ and working for the church themselves. And, um, and a lot of them get burned out and they leave because just the toxic dynamics they encounter, like, I feel like I'm in it for the Eucharist, and some days I've joked if I was in it for the people, I'd probably be a Quaker. Mm. Um, but the only the thing that pulls me out of this sorrow is really when I meet people like you. Or mm. I think the pandemic made us so isolated and mm. so bound to mm. digital communities or like these narrow views and like just going to intentional community or hanging out with Catholic workers again. You need to meet the saints and the authentic messy saints to be and the people who are really trying to follow Christ. If you lose that connection while you're doing work in the church, it's really easy to just, just, you know, burn out, check out. Yeah. Burn out. Exactly. Check out. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. Yeah. What about the messiness? What about the mess? How is the how is living is, the gospel oh my God. messy? <laughs> yeah. How is it not? <laughs> right. Actually, I think God is not messy. I have to confess, I think it's me. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, everything from my email inbox to uh, yeah, everything's messy. Mm. And that's the beauty. 
of uh, of calling it what it is. Yeah. So what you do you, what else do you want um, to say? Okay, so I wanted to say about the media stuff, a little note about that and, and being a digital native and the fear you see people get canceled all the time online and stuff and, and kind of just build on that. Um, the story is that everyone's story is infinitely important and valuable. And some of us just happen to end up in weird positions for one reason or another where it's amplified. And it's made me think a lot about that, about these fears. And I think a huge hope that it gives me is that the mostly positive feedback and the interactions I've had have shown that the cruelty that exists when we see these snippets of interaction online is the minority of human interaction, even online. And the scariest things, outcomes of pursuing our vocations or where God is calling us are usually things that we play out in our heads that don't happen. I am so guilty of this. And so many points along this path of question, why me? There's people that are smarter than me. There's people that are better at me at different things. Without any doubt, this isn't self-disparaging. It's just true. And there's people that have less work to do on their journey towards holiness. And, and But now that I've been through a lot and the suffering and the kind of wisdom of trial by fire and just the lack of emotional capacity at this point to really stress about that stuff, to yeah. be honest, after everything I've been through, it's a... Uh, it's just, it's just this profound inner peace of, of understanding that the question isn't why me and acknowledging all these faults and weaknesses, but it's stepping back and saying, if God can do this with someone like me, just that the fact that I have personally been able to see this I'm sure you have too in your vocations, people who are follow a vocational path, um, whether traditional or non-traditional. It's, it's really awesome. And it's so hopeful. Yeah. And if I could tell people anything out there, it would really be be not afraid. Yeah. Be not afraid. You're going to be afraid. <laughs> or at least I'm terrified a lot. But... Jesus always shows up and tells me that. And and God is like so wild. I have no idea what's in store for the future of humanity. And sometimes it looks really scary and dark. But God shows up in the most amazing ways in the darkest times. And he shows up in all of us. And we have we have to be brave. That's... And if we are the kingdom of God, we can build it. Yes. And I'll map it if you need any help. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Oh, Molly, thank you so much for coming on Amen. Messy Jesus Business. Thank you. Thank you for being thank you. who you are, a light thank to the so world, much. for being so faithful to the mess, the mess of the church, the mess of land, <laughs> land justice, the mess of creativity, and the digital data world and continuing to serve and say yes. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sister Julia, and, and for having me and also for being one of those bright spots that reflects 
that love of Christ that brings us all to the table every week <laughs> and reminds us that there is so much more to this mess than than the bad. So the bad is loud. The good is much more powerful. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Molly. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamskans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.